let's open our Bibles up to Revelation. We will get cracking into chapter 14 because this is a little bit longer chapter and we are going to try to take it all today. Last week we saw in chapter 13 this false prophet and he followed the Antichrist, the first beast out of the sea. And this Chapter 14 is still a continuation of this vision that John is receiving. And in chapter 14, we'll see several angels making several proclamations to the earth, to the earth dwellers. But even before that, we'll get another glimpse of these 144,000 sealed servants. And this time, we see them as they are after the tribulation. And this will be an interesting glimpse into the future for us. I also want to preface all of this by saying that there are a range of views that are held on this chapter, on chapter 14, especially surrounding the identity of this group of 144,000 that we'll look at. Even the commentators and teachers that I usually reference and those that I trust and look to as sound expositors, they even disagree amongst themselves. And fortunately for us, this is not an extremely important point. This is not a contest of doctrine. But how you view Revelation and how you view the events unfolding during that timeline are going to impact how you view this 144,000. And you'll see that as we move along. So just because I hold a view... (laughs) doesn't mean that you have to hold the same view. You don't have to agree with me, but try to stick with me and I'll present as best I can these different views to you and you can make up your own mind. So first, let's read these first five verses in chapter 14. John says, Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Literally, that means harpists harping their harps. And he really harps on that point. (laughs) They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The identity of these 144,000 is something that is not widely agreed upon. And many weeks ago, I don't even remember how long ago it was, I said that the location where events and visions of Revelation unfold are key to our understanding of them. And that's especially true for this little passage. If they're on the heavenly Mount Zion, which is one view. We've got two main views that I'll present to you. First view is that these 144,000 with the Lamb standing on Mount Zion refers to the heavenly Mount Zion. And Hebrews 12.22 supports the fact that there is a heavenly Jerusalem and a heavenly Mount Zion. Also, Mount Zion is the highest place in Jerusalem. It's a little hill there. And um, so when we say Mount Zion and Jerusalem, they can sometimes be interchanged with each other because Mount Zion is in Jerusalem, okay? So this first view, and we've got a graphic for you outlining it, views these saints and the Lamb as on the heavenly Mount Zion. It seems more likely that these are saints from the church age, that make up this 144,000 in this prominent view. 
Now, this is a viable position to take. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with it. But um, location would be heaven, okay? The identity of the 144,000 would be the saints from the church age, and in particular, remarkable saints, ones that stood out, who also fit all of these other requirements, okay? The timeline. Where would this fit in if these were saints from the church age? If that was the case, it would make sense that this scene took place in the middle of the tribulation. That would be after the trumpet judgments and right before the bowl judgments that we're about to come to in our study. This view tends to work best if you assign this vision to that middle period of the tribulation. And since Jesus, the Lamb, won't be on earth during the tribulation, this scene with the Lamb is obviously unfolding in heaven. Okay, that encompasses the first view. Now we'll talk about this second view. And the second view sees this as describing the earthly Mount Zion in literal earthly Jerusalem. And it seems more likely in this view that this is the same group of 144,000 sealed servants from among the Jewish people from chapter 7. We all remember the 144,000 from chapter 7. The second view supposes that this is the same group of people. Location would be earth. The identity of the 144,000, they're the Jewish servants of God. They're the same as the 144,000 from chapter 7. The timeline for this view would place this vision, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, at the beginning of the millennium. So after the tribulation, when Jesus comes back to set up his earthly kingdom, we're seeing a glimpse into the beginning of that earthly kingdom. Okay? And this view tends to work well with this timeline because the 144,000 sealed Jews are preserved through the tribulation and into the millennium. And that would make sense if this view, if this vision took place on earth, because those sealed servants of God would still be on earth. They would not be in heaven. And I hope that that kind of makes sense. This timeline is unfolding and they would still be on earth. John is given a vision of earth at the beginning of the millennium, when Jesus is ruling from Mount Zion. And Psalm 2, 6 through 9, along with other places in Scripture, tell us that Jesus will reign from Mount Zion. Psalm 2, starting in verse 6, says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That is speaking to the millennium. Jesus will reign from Mount Zion in the millennium. And if you were curious as to which view I take, I tend to lean more towards the view that these are the same sealed servants from chapter 7. John is given this vision as a sneak peek of what's to come. And I think it's well-placed. In this string of visions, we've just come through the beasts. It's kind of sad. It's kind of gory. And then this little snippet is inserted, showing John what it will be like in the millennium. I think that it's very well-placed, and I think that that, that's how it's intended. You can feel free to agree with me or not, but this is the view that I'm going to take for the remainder of this morning. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So immediately... 
that phrase, having his father's name written on their foreheads, makes us think of those sealed servants from chapter 7. They also had a mark of their father on their foreheads. One of the several reasons I think it's the same group. Not one of these sealed servants have been lost through this time of intense persecution. Remember the dragon spewing the flood out of his mouth to try to overtake God's children. Not one of them has been harmed. They were all preserved. They've come through the tribulation period unharmed. Just like Daniel's friends in Daniel chapter 3, who were thrown into the fiery furnace, if we see that as a type of the tribulation, how many of them made it through that furnace? All three of them, plus one. Somebody else was in there with them. Where was Daniel during that experience? He wasn't there. He was taken out of harm's way. Physically, he was probably running errands for the king or something, picking up groceries, who knows. But he was not there to experience this fiery furnace. A lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. So we have this picture of the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with Christ, the lamb. And it's interesting that Mount Zion is probably the most contended mountain in the world, or hill. But Islam largely ignored Mount Zion until Israel regained it. There's no mention of it in the Quran, and the Muslim interest seems to stem from Israel's interest in it. Interesting. Satan has had his target set on Mount Zion. And now it's the third most important place in Islam. Used to not care about it, but now it's their third most important place. Having his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This is a unique song that they're singing. And if anyone wants to undertake a study, I'm interested to see someone put together something about all of the songs in Revelation. It may have already been done, but I haven't seen it. What can we gather from all these songs that are, you know, pretty consistently laid out through Revelation? It'd be interesting. This song is one that only this group of people can learn. No one else. There was another song back in the earlier chapters that only the redeemed of the earth, the the redeemed, could sing. The angels couldn't join in because they weren't redeemed. They could only join into the chorus, not the specific verse. Okay? So there are songs that will be in heaven that you can't sing and that I can't sing. But there will be songs that other people can't sing of ours. So it's an interesting dynamic. There are unique experiences that we experience in the church age And there will be unique experiences for those who go through the tribulation. And I have no doubt that these songs are relating to those unique experiences. Except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Is this literally talking about virgins? That's a hotly (laughs) debated topic. Are they actually going to be virgins? I personally think we're seeing both a literal and spiritual meaning here, but there are some nuances to uncover with that. It makes sense that marriage wouldn't necessarily be a priority 
for these 144,000 sealed servants. Just seeing as they're facing the most intense persecution the world has ever seen. And throughout history, even up to modern history, we've seen troubling times bring a decrease in the number of marriages, in the number of kids, the birth rates. For example, men and women living during World War II were more hesitant to get married and start families because the men were being shipped overseas. And there were too many women who regretted having married right before their husbands were deployed. And there were too many fathers who never got to see their children. And you could say that it was wise to remain unencumbered during that time of war, that time of peril. And biblically speaking, Paul counsels the first century Christians who were facing intense persecution that getting married may not be the best idea. And we find that whole episode recorded in 1 Corinthians 7. He wrote to those Christians, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, that is, unmarried. So though he gives them a bit of wisdom in this area, he does not outright forbid marriage. He does not forbid people to get married. Rather, because of the times they were living in, specifically under persecution from Rome, it was wise to remain unencumbered. And Jeremiah stands out as another biblical example. Having lived during the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah was this time forbidden by the Lord to marry. We can find that in Jeremiah 1, sorry, Jeremiah 16, verse 1 through 4. He lived during this pivotal time in Israel's history, and the Lord did not want him tied down. Perhaps, though, the most directly tied reference to these 144,000 sealed servants comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, 19, he warns concerning the tribulation that it would be difficult for mothers who are pregnant and nursing babies. You probably remember that Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 19, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And this was in direct reference to Israel's flight into the wilderness following the abomination of desolation. It would be hard for women who were pregnant or nursing when they had to run out of the city into the wilderness and hole up there. So it would be smart to remain unencumbered. So, since marriage could be seen as a hindrance during times of persecution, such as this great tribulation, we might could take this to mean that these 144,000 will literally be virgins. But there's a little problem with this. Hebrews 13.4 clearly states that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The woman that you're married to cannot defile you. And I know you're thinking, thank goodness, got that covered. But the woman that you're married to cannot defile you. Our text this morning says that these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Well, if marriage, if the marriage bed is undefiled, then they would not be defiled with their wives. They would not be defiled by women if they were with their wife. God is very clear in his word that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. In fact, his command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply came before the fall. That was a very sacred and very pure command between a man and a woman to reproduce, to have 
dominion over the earth. So to say that the union between a man and his wife is somehow impure is to say that God tempted Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the world. We know that's ridiculous. So if this is to be taken literally, that these are virgins, and I think you can take it literally, it is probably saying that these men kept their marriage vows or remained unmarried. Any other physical relations would qualify them as being defiled with women. So that's how I think this should be read. By the way, just a fun fact, this is the only time in Scripture that a man is specifically referred to as a virgin. Thought I'd throw that out there. You can make with that what you will. But not only is there a literal meaning to this, I believe there's also a heavy spiritual meaning to this, probably more so than literal. Idolatry is consistently referred to as spiritual fornication in Scripture. And Ezekiel 16 is a classic example, but you can find it all over. The church is to be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin. That's from 2 Corinthians 11.2. You can reference Ephesians 5, 26, and 27 as well. And this chaste virgin is in regards to idolatry, not biological reproduction. The church is to remain true to Christ, her bridegroom. We can also contrast this idea of spiritual chastity with Jezebel, that figure in the Old Testament who brought idolatry into Israel. 1 Kings 18 through 21-ish records some of Jezebel's exploits. She was married to King Ahab, and she brought uh, Baal worship and other forms of idolatry into the kingdom. She's referred to as a harlot in the letter to Thyatira. Remember in the beginning of Revelation, that's in chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, talks about Jezebel. And like Jezebel, we'll see a vision of a spiritual harlot in Revelation 17, which we're coming up on quickly. And that's the woman who rides the beast. So we have this idea of a spiritual fornication. And this group of 144,000 did not engage in spiritual fornication with the beast with the false prophet, with that religious system. And I think that is the big idea to get from this little piece of text. This sealed group did not engage with the world's religious practices. They stayed true to the lamb. And look, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They stay true to him. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. These were redeemed from among men makes it very clear that this group is human beings. They were also believers in Christ. They were redeemed from among men. These men uh, were not sinless, and we'll look at that in in verse 5, but they were redeemed. They still had to be redeemed. And it's the same way that we're redeemed, by the way. Being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This seems to be a reference to Israel. And another reason why I think these are those Jewish believers In his great manifesto on the relationship of Israel, the church, and God, Paul mentions this concerning Israel. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. 
And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That's found in Romans 11. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. The first fruit referring to God's people, Israel. In short, this time of reconciling for the Jews will be the fulfillment of many promises and prophecies when they finally turn to Christ at the end of the tribulation. It will be a time of reconciling. James addresses his epistle to Jewish Christians. And in the first verse of the epistle of James, he says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He addresses this letter to Jewish Christians. And in James 1.18, he says this, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We, referring to Jewish Christians. So I think that this first fruits in Revelation is a reference to Israel. It kind of makes us think that these are the Jewish sealed servants. Verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They are found blameless and they are spiritually pure. This word deceit means lie, a falsehood, or guile. And this could refer to the lie that was prophesied by Paul to come during this time in the tribulation in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. This strong delusion, as he calls it, that will come with the man of sin. Could be referring to that here. It could also be referring to general lies. They were not liars. Either way, this group will be found without fault before the throne of God. Now, are they found without fault because they were perfect and sinless? Absolutely not. They were humans. They had to be redeemed the same way we have to be redeemed by placing their faith in Jesus as their savior. They are redeemed by his blood in the same way that we are redeemed by his blood. And it's only through that, that they can be without fault before the throne of God. Verse six, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Verse 6 starts a string of several angels bringing proclamations to the earth. And we'll see several more of them coming up in later verses. This angel brings the everlasting gospel. And it says that he preaches to those who dwell on the earth. Now remember that phrase, dwell on the earth? We've seen it a lot. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Just to clarify. I want you to pay attention that this angel proclaims the gospel of Christ, the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This means that every man on the earth will hear the gospel in his own native tongue. This is like a last ditch effort from God to get somebody else saved. If they will turn, they can still be saved but we know we're going to get the toughest of the tough at this point. You know, towards the end, at least in the second half, people are going to be so, so hard-headed 
it will be difficult to get through to them. You would think, right now, if we saw an angel flying over us saying, Fear God, that would wake some of us up. And I hope that it wakes some people up then, but they will have already seen many signs and heard the gospel probably before. Um, It's just not looking good for them, and it gets worse. This gospel is presented in black and white, with judgment being the end of anyone who does not respond. Again, a last-ditch effort. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is the last part of this proclamation by the angel. And there's an emphasis here on God as the creator. Even earlier scientists regarded a creator. It's only in modern history, very recent times, that science has turned their back on God. Sir Isaac Newton is a great example. He regarded a creator. And seeing this reminds me of the ICR Discovery Center up in Dallas. If you've been there, you go into the first little exhibit, and it's a room with these screens, which are presented as paintings on the wall. And it's a bunch of old scientists talking to each other about the workings of the universe and how there must be a creator involved in all of this. It's a fascinating exhibit, and I would recommend it if you've got time. Um, But these scientists regarded a creator, and only recently did we try to shove God out of science. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 1.20 builds on that, saying, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's an emphasis that this angel places on God as the creator. And that's a powerful message to an unrepentant world. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. We're so fortunate to live in the age of grace that we do. And this is the same gospel, but with a different tone. Because at that point, judgment is what's next. There's, there's nothing else to be done. It's just time to wrap it up. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why does he say that twice? a little strange. There's a little nugget tucked away in Genesis 41, 32. Joseph is interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was given two dreams, both relating to the seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine that were to follow. Verse 32 in Genesis 41 says, And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. So by repeating is fallen twice, it seems to be a form of emphasis that indicates near-term timing. God will shortly bring this to pass. Babylon is fallen is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And we won't spend too much time here because we're about to see more from Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. But 
This is their end. Babylon is fallen. And this is foretold with so much surety that it's stated as if it had already happened. Though it had not, even when this angel comes through and declares Babylon is fallen. Babylon had not yet fallen in our earthly timeline. But Babylon will fall a little bit later on. And the visions in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation give us more detail on Babylon. This judgment comes upon religious Babylon in Revelation 17 and upon commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. And we'll look at that in pretty good detail. Also, if you want to check it out, Psalm 137 is an account of the destruction of Babylon prophetically. Um, Also, it's all over. Isaiah also deals with it. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Those are some very straightforward and very sobering words. We talked about this identifying mark of the beast last week in chapter 13. And here we see that if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And that he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This seems to be saying that there's no hope of salvation for those who take the mark and worship the beast. And I think that sometimes we can find ourselves getting too comfortable with our position in history, living in the church age with grace abounding. Are we too comfortable? We live in this age of grace where we think that we can only accept Christ. And there's not really anything I can do to reject Christ outright. I always have one more day to accept him. Oh, goodness. That is a very, very poor mindset. And that will likely get you somewhere you don't want to go. Because we never know when our time will come to leave the earth. And once we're gone from the earth, we pass away, there is no salvation left for us. Hebrews tells us that it's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. Oh, I'll get serious about Jesus next year, you know, when I've got more time. Or next Sunday, I'll accept him at church. I'll come forward and I'll make that declaration. There's not really a sense of urgency there. But there should be. There should be a sense of urgency to us. But during this time in the tribulation, there's a choice that allows someone to reject Christ in finality. That is to take this mark, to worship the beast, to be a part of this spiritual religious system that is in direct contrast with Jesus Christ. That is the choice that allows someone to reject Christ in finality. A man cannot be saved if he bears the mark or worships the beast. And there's a lot of talk of the the mark of the beast changing DNA, changing something innate about humanity. That's possible. 
I suppose that would be one way that you could not be saved afterwards if you weren't completely human. Okay, so there is that idea. But also, we're sealed by God right now. We are innately and genetically fallen. And we cannot be with God in that fallen state. I don't see the need, again, it it may be, I, I don't know, but I don't see the need to incorporate a genetic mutation to make us not be saved. We can choose Christ and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit right now. And when this mark comes around, it's the same thing. It's a choice. You're choosing to side with the enemy. And that literally now places a seal on you. And you are sealed for that destiny. For the destiny of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon, which is ultimately the lake of fire. This angel's message could be what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24, 13, and 14. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Could be what he was talking about there. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This further emphasizes the importance that one not worship the beast and not receive the mark of his name. And again, it's not your mark or your number that's a problem. It's his mark and his number that you need to watch out for. There is a thought that is all too prevalent in the church. Um, It's called annihilationism. And it basically states that if you die, go to hell, you'll be burnt up, and that's the end of it. That is opposed to the biblical idea of eternal torment. It is opposed to to biblical doctrine. It clearly says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And look, it's not a comfortable thing to wrestle with. And I can grant you that, and I agree with you. But it's here, and we need to face it. The reality is you spend eternity with God or without God. There is no alternative. You are eternal, whether you like it or not, and whether you know where you're going or not. You are eternal. The problem we have right now, one of the many, is that I can't actually see you. I can see the tent that you're walking around in, but the real you is software, not hardware. If I load a hard drive, Say it has a one terabyte, a thousand gigabyte capacity. If it's empty and I slap it on a scale, weigh it, we'll say it weighs two ounces. If I load it up with a thousand gigabytes of software information, I slap it back on the scale, it's still going to weigh two ounces. That information is who we really are. That information is non-material which means it's outside of time. It's not bound by time or matter or space. That software is going to live on somewhere. Where do you want your software to be? That's the question. And you have that choice to make this morning. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. We just heard from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Do not overlook this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This comes across as a strange assurance. Why does it just say from now on? This statement singles out the believers who die during the tribulation, and specifically the second half of the tribulation. And I believe it's pointed at those who feel that they've missed the boat in some capacity. This encouragement would only be relevant if they felt they had missed something. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. First century believers had a similar concern. And that led Paul to write to them in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and on through that chapter a little bit. Paul addresses the concern that had arisen surrounding the resurrection. Paul had taught them many things about the end, about this resurrection of believers, and those believers were worried that the men and women who passed away before them would not get to experience the resurrection when Christ returned. They were concerned about this. They didn't want their brothers and sisters who had already passed away to miss out. So Paul wrote to them, and he corrected them in their thinking. There's a bit of irony here, looking back on it, because none of them made it to the second coming of Jesus. All of them passed away before the second coming. But they did expect to see Jesus return. I think that's something we should keep in mind. They realized that Jesus would be coming soon. And in fact, he is still coming soon. And he's coming sooner than he was back then. We are closer now to his coming. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15, Paul writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, passed away, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They thought that their fellow believers who had already passed away had missed the boat. But Paul wrote them a special encouragement, and that eased their minds. Now in Revelation, it seems that this statement, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, is included as an admonition, as an encouragement to the tribulation saints who feel they've missed something. We would then naturally ask, what did they miss? What could they have possibly missed? And it would make sense that they would have missed the rapture. Is there something connected with the rapture and tribulation saints being left behind that plays into this? And now they're doubting whether they can even attain salvation. But John, see here, this is important. John is explicitly instructed to include this sentence. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard, says John, a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. These words will long outlive us. They will live strongly into the tribulation, and the tribulation saints will have this to look back on as an encouragement to them to keep pressing on. Those who make it to the end will be blessed. And then look what happens. 
Yes, says the Spirit. The Holy Spirit chimes in to confirm what John just wrote. That they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. If you're just reading through chapter 14, you know, trying to get through it, you may skip over these couple verses. And it may seem like this was thrown in as an afterthought, but I would suggest, I know, that it was extremely intentional. If you'll notice, this voice from heaven instructed John to make sure he wrote this part down. It's like, don't miss this. And then the Holy Spirit chimes in to confirm what was written. Yes, says the Spirit. And that is no accident. But this is a purposeful encouragement to the tribulation saints who will read this long after we are with our Lord. And their rest, I assure you, will be highly anticipated. After enduring the things that they have, their rest in Christ will be welcomed. And this rest seems to be juxtaposed or contrasted with the torment of the beast followers. It's right here next to each other. And their works follow them. We are never told by Scripture that we will be saved by our works, but we are told that we will be rewarded for our works. Our works follow us. Good or bad, our works will follow us. Let's read verses 14 through 16 real quick. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This first reaping seems to be referring to a harvest of wheat. We'll see another harvest in verses 17 through 20 to round out the chapter. That second harvest is talking about a harvest of grapes. They seem to be very distinct from each other. Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man. We can identify this figure as Christ. And we can do this from the fact that he sits on a cloud and he is referred to as one like the son of man. And this was Jesus's favorite title of himself recorded in Matthew's gospel, the son of man. This isn't an angel, but this figure looks like a man. He was like the son of man. And it's further solidified as Jesus by the fact that he wears a golden crown. Now, this crown is a Stephanos, which we know is a victor's crown. It's like the wreath that would be won in the Greek games. It placed this wreath on the victor's head. But this, this Stephanos, this wreath, is special because it's gold. Usually they would be floral arrangements. This is not the diadem or the ruler's crown that Jesus will wear when he returns to earth as a king. And I suspect that the reason for this being a Stephanos here and not a diadem has something to do with his victory on earth. He's a winner. He's defeated the enemy. This passage is also tied to Armageddon, which we'll see in a second, but Jesus is also victorious there. And that's my own personal conjecture, but this is certainly not speaking of Christ's return, his second coming as we think of it. This is more of a vision of what's going on in heaven now. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. And this sharp sickle speaks of judgment. The word sickle 
is used 12 times in the Bible. And it's used seven times in the chapter in chapter 14 here. It's the most in any chapter. Seven out of 12 times it's used is in chapter 14. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, we often think of harvesting in terms of evangelistic efforts, the harvesting of souls. Um, But it's actually not our job to harvest. It's our job to sow. We are told to sow the seed. We sow the word of God and he brings about the increased and he harvests. Matthew 9 verses 37 and 38 is a passage that we'll usually think of as relating to evangelism and harvesting. But even here, it's his harvest, not ours. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's God's harvest. We just sow the seeds. And it's possible that this harvest refers to a gathering of righteous souls and a judgment of the unrighteous. And you can reference the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew 13, 24 and on a little bit. Now let's read verses 17 through 20 to round out this chapter. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now we're dealing with this harvest of grapes. But a sickle is still being used to harvest these grapes. A sickle isn't used to harvest grapes in the natural. So it's easy to see that we're dealing with spiritual realities here. And it's really pretty neat because we get to look behind the curtains. Um, That reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtains. We get to see this spiritual reality that is behind our physical reality. 2 Kings 6 records the episode when Elisha was surrounded by an army. And it says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the same type of deal, peeking behind the curtains. Elisha knew that their friends outnumbered their enemies. Though he was surrounded by an army, He prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant and let him see the reality, the spiritual reality that was behind their situation. And you probably remember the episode with Balaam and his donkey. Uh, Kind of a comical 
uh, story if it weren't so sad. Uh, he was mad at his donkey because it wouldn't move forward on the trail. It's being stubborn. But the donkey saw something that he didn't. There was an angel who was blocking the path, who was going to kill Balaam if he kept going. So the donkey actually saved his life. These are different instances where a spiritual reality is realized in our physical reality. And this is the same kind of insight that we're getting in this last section of chapter 14. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. Now, we can fairly safely assume that this is the same altar that the altar of incense was modeled after. And also the same altar that the martyrs cried out from under in chapter 6 of Revelation. This may also be the same angel who took that golden censer of fire from the altar and threw it to earth in Revelation 8.5. So we could be seeing all the same angel and the same altar here. It says that this angel had power over fire. That's interesting, just concerning this golden censer and fire from the altar. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So this angel is pleading with the other angel who has the sickle to make his move, saying, come on, bring this judgment, get it over with. For her grapes are fully ripe. And the word here means rotting. The grapes are rotting. God is so long-suffering and patient that he waits so long to judge the earth that the vines of the earth are rotting. And God keeps time morally, not with minutes and seconds. And by this time, humanity is so rotten that his judgment cannot be forestalled any longer. It has to come. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And this kind of outlines for us the rest of Revelation up to about chapter 19. It's the reaping of these grapes. Verse 20, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, for 1,600 furlongs. And that's a bit of a gruesome scene. But I think that this is giving us a glimpse now into the Battle of Armageddon that will occur when Antichrist and his cohorts have gathered an army of nations to make war on Jesus Christ and his armies. And there's more detail given about this battle in Revelation 16. We'll talk about it more there. But the battle of Armageddon will occur at the end of the tribulation, right before Christ takes his rightful place on his throne, the throne of David, on Mount Zion. This whole scene in verses 14 through 20 is played out in greater detail in chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19. And this is when the earth is judged in finality. Way back, we saw one-fourth one of things were affected during the seal judgments. And then we saw that one-third of certain things were affected in the trumpet judgments. And in chapter 16, whatever is left will be affected in the bull judgments. There is a finality to this judgment of the earth. And in the beginning of the tribulation, the things that befall the dwellers of the earth are just brought on by their own stupidity and sin. They're natural consequences. The white horse coming in, the ruler rising up, Antichrist. That's brought on by their own want for a political savior. Following him, 
the wars, the red horse. That follows authoritarian rule, naturally. After war, what comes? Famine, the black horse. That's a natural following of war. What follows famine? Pestilence, disease, death. That's a natural flow of things. Those are just the result of man's sin. But now as we move deeper into the tribulation, things get more supernatural and more intense. There's this temperature is being cranked up. The volume is cranked up to 11. There is a finality to this judgment. And chapter 15 will come to next week. It's the shortest chapter in Revelation. And we're going to get through it all. And chapter 16 is going to outline the bowl judgments for us. Following that, we get two visions from John, and they both deal with Babylon, which we know is fallen, is fallen. So we'll look at that coming up. We're going to close right there for this morning. We will close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be off to lunch. Thank you.